You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gartner designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. This is part one of the anniversary episode, the episode number 200, which we recorded live. And uh, as this was a two-hour event, we split this episode into three shorter episodes. So this is the first part where we interview a couple of guests, really, really well-known guests. And so stay tuned for this. It's pretty kind of rapid fire. We will have new guests every 10 minutes, about every 10 minutes. So stay tuned. These are the first couple of ones. And then in the next two episodes, you will uh, listen from the second and the third part of the live recording. So stay tuned. By the way, if you want to watch it on video, then you can head over to the Effective Statistician and find the episode number 200 there. We have there the live recording and you can watch it there. See you there and have fun with this episode. First, thanks so much for PSI, who has sponsored this. We worked together since the start of the podcast. It was really, really great to have, you know, PSI helping with the launch of the podcast. We had lots of, lots of different episodes with PSI members. And that gave this show a lot of boost and a lot of content and uh, of course even more lots of interesting people to talk to so i'm really really thankful for that if you want to join psi like frank wants to join because there's an awesome conference coming up next, next year crossing fingers it actually happens face to face in gothenburg uh, then head over to psiweb.org to uh, check out about everything that PSI is doing and about all the different um, benefits of becoming a PSI member. Actually, I have a podcast episode about this as well. So if you scroll back and it's one of the first ones, you'll uh, hear about what all great things are happening on, on the PSI side. The other sponsor that we have today and for the special episode is jump and that is a really really nice one because jump was one of the first tools that i used personally to analyze and visualize data and since then of course many many years ago lots of things have changed today's challenges require really renewed focus and the statistical software jump helps pharmaceutical and biotech companies see how to move forward quickly, safely, and efficiently. Jump empowers scientists, engineers, and researchers to explore process and lab data, understand sources of process variation, learn more from root cause investigations, and optimize processes, all without learning to code. Just head over to jump.com, so jmp.com forward slash pharma and you'll learn much more about this. There's also corresponding links in the show notes of this episode. 
So, with that said, we are at two o'clock and I'm really, really happy to introduce everybody here. First, of course, have my two co-hosts here. Hi, Benjamin. How are you doing? Hi, Alex. Yeah, thanks. Well, it's a journey up to 200. So it's I'm really pleased to be here to have this round and uh, excited to have the next two hours in a live meeting. Yes. And Sam, how are you doing? Today's a wonderful day. You know, I'm a late joiner to the podcast. Uh, I just started participating well, a little bit less than six months ago, I guess. But I've listened for most of the podcasts uh, over over its history. So it's, it's great to be involved with yeah. it and to be on for this live episode. We'll actually have also some other listeners uh, joining later today, uh, one of which has started, uh, you know, has listened really from the start. He was one of the first listeners that reached out to me and um, he's, he'll be on the podcast later. But now let's go to one of our first guests of this um, show. And for this show, we have only guests that are from the top 20 most downloaded episodes. So it's a top 10% here. And uh, among really kind of the most downloaded <laughs> is Frank's uh, podcast about uh, non-parametric statistics. Hi, Frank. How are you doing? Hi, hi Alex. I'm doing fine. I hope you are doing fine. Congratulations, by the way, for the 200th episode. And many <laughs> thanks, thanks for so inviting much. me. So I actually heard about your podcast for the first time when you invited me to the episode. <laughs> and after this, I also listened to a few. So but it's a really great one. So thanks, thank you thanks. again for, for having me. Yeah. And of course, this episode about non-parametric statistics was very close to Benjamin's and my heart because... Having also uh, studied in, in Göttingen uh, at uh, Professor Brunner's uh, institute, it's one of these topics that we have both researched about, um, written our PhD and master thesis, or actually at that time diploma thesis about. And so it's, it's really great. And uh, if you don't know, Frank actually published a book about it. What is it called? Uh, the book is called Rank and Pseudo-Rank uh, Procedures in Factorial Experiments with applications in SARS and R. Yeah, and I think the, the letter is really great because at the time when I was working on it, we were actually you know, providing the first R and SARS macros and it wasn't so easy to, to implement these. But now lots of these things are on GitHub and, and really easily available. Uh, what are you currently working on in terms of non-programmatic statistics, Frank? So actually, I have a few projects going on. It's mostly um, sample-sized planning. So we are working on sample-sized planning, sample-sized computations using rank statistics, like with the Wilcoxon test and its generalizations. And I'm also working on sample-sized recalculation based on, based on ranking methods like we're extending these traditional methods to, to planning and recalculation and ongoing trials. It's kind of an interesting area and a helpful one, definitely, because I have so many trials where we need to compute sample size. 
it's a very helpful tools for 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 planning trials. What what is really different to the let's say the, the typical parametric approaches when you do it based on non-parametric methods? First of all, the, the effects that you use are not means. These are what we call relative effects. So it's like probability term, or like the, the probability to have one observation being smaller in one sample than in the other. Mm -hmm. Like fixing these effects in advance as planning parameters, I'd say it's mostly not so intuitive or not so easy as, the, as if you would work with means. And also nuisance parameters are not so easy, right? Because you cannot use the standard deviation that you, that you uh, expect to see in your trial. So you need to work with nuisance parameters or like some calculations thereof in the, in the planning. But at the end of the day, it's doable. So what you need to know, or like you have an idea about the value of the relative effects, we can bound the variance uh, with, with some formula so that you basically only need your effect that you want to show, the relative effect that you want to show as the planning parameters. Mm -hmm. If you do this more involved, then you need some ideas about the nuisance parameters, like variances of estimators of something. Mm -hmm. So the nice thing is that you can have all kinds of, you know, weird distributions being fed into it. So if you, for example, have uh, do some um, network meta-analysis and you mm -hmm. get then these posterior distributions from the network meta-analysis, which can have, you know, all kinds of different forms. You can use these directly to uh, put into your um, sample size estimation. Uh, yes. Instead of you know just taking kind of means and standard deviations from it and then assuming some normality or something like this. Definitely, definitely. So this works for all kind of data. So data have, must be at least on an ordinary scale. So and it works for any any shape of the distributions. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> watching watching non-parametrics for quite a while now. Um, you know, it's it's not a new science in a way but do you see any any kind of like trends or any additional um, applications where non-parametrics comes more into business our days as it was like you know years or decades ago yeah it's for example uh, in all the statistics area have grown right it's not the standard statistics that it has been years ago today it's also besides traditional like data it's functional data for example so today there are methods for functional data analysis available, also ranking methods for functional data. So like functional data means that you don't observe one point, only you observe a whole curve, but you observe a whole function of data. So arbitrary length. And even for those, you are able to, to perform ranking methods uh, to test hypotheses, compute confidence intervals for some effects, even for those kind of data. So it's usually what I see, it's uh, when there's something, let's say, new, the first parametric methods evolve, and then non-parametric methods usually follow. So yeah, it's kind we, of very interesting to to observe. Yeah, which makes sense because I mean, if you if you have for parametrics, uh, you know, like a, like assumptions, usually some some distribution assumptions, you're trying to general, you know, do this more generalized in terms of using non-parametric methods, which is 
which is then usually the second step after the first, yeah, so, um, yeah. which big advantage. Yeah. Um, and secondly, it's also resampling methods that play a big role in non-parametrics today. For example, in these more complicated scenarios like this functional data or in any high-dimensional settings that resampling methods are used to approximate and also the distributions of the test. So all these things that have been involved in recent years, let's say independently, so these come together today. Yeah. Kind of a very nice, very nice to see. And it's a very nice yeah. playground for researchers also. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I just, you know, when, when do we have your first, um, you know, professor just purely for non-parametrics? <laughs> so because of yeah. the, you know, the you know, extended um, approaches that non-parametrics at the moment, you know, we, we are seeing in the in, in non-parametrics. So yeah. now it's really, it's really exciting and, and to see and to follow and to be still in contact with you, Frank, after, you know, after you correct my diploma thesis. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> it's, it's, um, <clears throat> really good to see that that people you know like uh, like you are just digging into the into the wide area of non-parametrics to to really you know get the maximum out of it um, you know further and further so appreciate yeah. it yeah because non-parametric methods are very useful but they are not only useful like in preclinical for animal testing trials they are useful in, in clinical trials in in you can say in all kinds of areas they play a big role that's, yeah. that's why they're also so prominent. Yep. I think we need to more spread the word about this. And that's what we are doing today. Sam, any final question for Frank? Uh, no. I, well, one thing I had thought about was, and I remember when I studied in graduate school, you know, we did the, the classical derivation of what the Mann-Whitney statistic or, you know, the U statistic and showed that it was, in all situations, except when the data was normally distributed, it was more powerful. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that, but at the same time, I've almost never used non-parametric statistics to do any work or non-parametric statistical methods. And I'm just wondering from your standpoint, what are some of the barriers for people to adopt using non-parametric methods and, and how, how, how can we get people to consider using non-parametric uh, methods more? Well, I think one of the, uh, let me say, also disadvantages from non-parametric methods is that, you, that the scale on which you work, like the scale on which the effect estimators or the effects are defined, are not the scale of the original data. So what you mostly do is you transform the scale of your data into a probability scale. And this makes your statistic or like the evaluation or the interpretation of it a little bit more involved compared two methods that actually work on the same scale on which data have been observed. So this can be one, one of the reasons. And of course, when you work, let me say non-parametric methods are a little bit more involved, or a little bit more, um, um, more technical maybe, or a little bit more, more challenging than the parametric ones in which you compute a mean and the standard deviation, but there are some more terms involved, which makes it a little bit more challenging maybe this could be one more reason that few researchers stay away from it. Thanks so much. Um, thanks Thank for you. being the show, Frank. And with that, we head over directly to our next guest, uh, another guest from Germany, actually. 
um, or maybe I don't know where you currently are. Maybe you're in Austria as, as well. <laughs> good, uh, good. Justine, hi, Justine. How are you doing? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you. And uh, you're actually right. I'm joining from Innsbruck in Austria, and it's snowing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That is really, really lovely. So I, I guess you can have a lot of joy in the snow. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And I was, uh, I just listened to my colleague and I thought, oh, you know, I also learned from Edgar Bruna about non-parametric statistics <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so, um, but I, uh, I guess you, you want to, uh, to ask me uh, about something else. <laughs> yes, yes. We are not here about to talk about uh, non-parametric statistics with you. You have... Uh, some time ago, you, you um, became the lead of the whole biometrics and, and data science team at uh, Beringer. And um, recently, I saw a really interesting post on LinkedIn uh, from your team that you have done a, um, a day of joy at Beringer. So tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, actually, this was a festival of joy, not at BI, but more in our new biostatistics and data sciences uh, department. And um, so this festival of joy was um, just a great example of empowering, or rather, I would say, emancipating the team to develop a fun and a creative way to unite as one global biostatistics and data sciences community. So this community celebrates our people and the mindsets and behaviors that lead us towards a bright future, as I think. So it was a fantastic virtual festival that leveraged not what you usually connect with data science. So it was not much about science. Um, it was also about our achievements, but it was more about music, art, poetry, and even cooking to showcase our individual talents and how we harness these talents to model our chosen behaviors. And um, why is this so important? So the behaviors are important to us because in order to deliver on our promise to patients, to deliver really innovative medicines to patients, we need to remember that uh, we are at first humans and more than just data, methods, analysis. Uh, we are all great data scientists and statisticians um, and nevertheless, um, remembering of humanity connects us to the patients in all that we do. Yes, yes. That is what I also always say at the beginning of each episode. It's about helping patients and serving patients in the end. And uh, that is what this, what this podcast is about. It's, um, uh, that's the area where we are working. Um, I think... You have a really good point there. Yeah. Um, there is much more to being a great statistician than, you know, being good on the methodological side. And we have talked about this quite a lot in, uh, on the show. Um, Benjamin and myself, I think we, we spent lots of hours over the last years to talk about various aspects. Benjamin, what's your main main things that you uh, kind of remember from these discussions? Well, I mean, as Justine said, it's, it's all about being, being human and doing something for others. I mean, we have, as statisticians, we, we might be brilliant in, in technical, you know, from technical aspects, but the, the soft skill aspect of the whole, you know, of our whole 
business life is is just more you know it's more than than the technical aspect and that is something that in in many many different ways um you know you need to to implement into um i mean it's it's not about yeah it's not necessarily about you know business or your job itself it's it's also how you do this in families i mean you meet you you gather at the moment a little bit less obviously but in 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 general it's it's more than just you know doing one one step after the other and then going into the next day it's about you know how to connect how to feel um feel well how to you know being appreciate and appreciate others and all the interactions so the soft skill in general and that is like a like a day of joy when i read about this as well i was i was amazed and actually my my question is just you know how how would you like like having one day is something that people remember i i would i would agree but how what, what's the follow up action that you would implement in in how to keep the spirit alive how to move on with you know maybe regathering redoing something following up on aspects that you touched so what is what is the plan there that's a that's a great question and um you're right i mean this is just or this was just one one day or one uh, even afternoon you know where we um um, talked about it and drives really the time together but um, it, and it's it's um, it's very important that we follow up on this you're absolutely right I, I just want to say it's not just about joy we have also uh, I would say some key mindset and behaviors um, like trust empathy courage curiosity the big picture mindset we mindset and so on so it's all of this and um, the, what is the plan? I would say we don't have a detailed plan, but what we want to do is to um, really showcase how we live these behaviors on a daily basis. Um, is it now in projects and trials or is it in all day-to-day -day interactions? And to really collect these cases, um, these examples and share with each other. It's all about connectivity, it's about sharing of experiences and, and, and looking into what is desired and what is perhaps something that we don't want to see, you know, when we, when we talk to each other or when we talk to our stakeholders or, or you know. Um, so this, this is um, a little bit um, the direction. So we will focus on this uh, mindset and behaviors for sure in the upcoming months. And I hope you will see more uh, also um, yeah um on linkedin and uh, other places yeah I'm, I'm really curious to see that yeah yeah so, we we have to interview you again and then <laughs> happy, happy happy to do so you know because uh, i mean this this behaviors and mindsets they um they really show how we want to work together and how we share our one goal so we want to connect the dots and consider always the bigger picture yeah, no, and that is that is what I what I feel or I heard that that often comes too short in in especially bigger companies where where we have a company goal but this is not not necessarily easy to follow as as a group you know where where you as statisticians or data scientists have a very specific type of thinking and type of you know goal like on 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 your desk so let's say your studies your your work your methodologies that you're working on but then align this overall. With something bigger that is that is um, yeah it's an amazing exercise so i i absolutely agree and if i can add something to this uh, you know uh, i would say we all have uh, excellent people with uh, great skills and we all have the same data 
but the question is always how we work together and what uh, you know what what is there what is really our our, our assets and I would say it's really uh, the mindset and behaviors we have and yep. when it comes especially to creativity um, I think there is uh, a lot of room for maneuver still. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Thanks so much, Justine. Uh, that was great to have you on the show. And uh, as for this episode, we are jumping directly to the next uh, people. Uh, we have already, uh, you know, um, Diana and Ian uh, from Ferromat on the show, which was really cool. Uh, both of them had episodes that were career related. And so, um, for, for this slot, uh, before we get to another really famous guest, um, I'm speaking with, we are speaking with uh, Diana and Ian. So, how are you doing, both? Yeah, very. <laughs> can you hear me okay? Yes, very yeah, good. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> it's great. You have. You have a really, really nice equipment there, Ian. Oh, you have some news to share. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so this has been used for uh, a new podcast, a very med-specific podcast. Uh, so I'm going to be the host of this podcast. Um, it will be launching soon. That's all I'll say. We can't give an exact date yet, but uh, very, very soon uh, that'll be available to all to hear. And that's really just to speak with very many employees talking about our day-to-day -day work and then hopefully it can help others in the industry too. That is so awesome. I hope we get many more podcasts from other statisticians as well. It's actually not that difficult anymore. And if you want to set up your own podcast and, you know, would like to get some help, just reach out to me. I'm really more than happy to help. So, um, we talked with both of you about career. I think um, career is a really interesting uh, thing in itself because um, what success means, I think is very, very personal. Um, what do you think about this? What, has, yeah, what is a successful career, Diana? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's very true. It is. It's very subjective it's very personal it's very individual and I think um uh yeah I mean Ian and I were having a discussion beforehand uh, about this and it's it's clear actually when we're at school we have a very different idea of what success is I think well, than actually when we get into our careers and you think it's going to be about the job title and the nice office and the money and whether you get a car allowance and that type of thing. It's very, very tangible things that you attach to your your success. But when you actually when you actually get into it, success really is being in a in a career that you enjoy, that you love, that you have passion for, that makes you want to get up in the morning and what you want to do and so probably to be successful and to get there it's going to be um, about the journey and about learning from all the the things the good things the bad things that you experience along the way um, but uh, I think success has very little to do with your job title it has lots to do with what you actually do in your role where you add value what gives you joy um 
But yes, I don't know whether Ian has anything to add to that. <laughs> I think for me, it's it's as it's, as you as you said, Dana. It's very easy at the beginning of your career to say, okay, in in thirty years' time, I want to be on this salary and I want to be director of biostatistics somewhere. In reality, I think I think over time, people's mindsets changed on that as they go through their career. Um, I think for me now, I'm in a position where I think I've tried to fast forward myself to, you know, when I'm at my age of retirement. And at that point, I want to ask myself, am I proud of what I've achieved over the last you know, 30, 40 years in my professional life? Have I worked as hard as I can? Have I always seek to improve? If I've done all those things, then the job title and everything else will you know, kind of thought, kind of sort itself out. It will fall into place naturally. I think it's unhealthy to sort of aim for a particular job title. If you can more aim to just always improve, then that will kind of just come with it. That's yeah, that's that's very true. And I think that's everyone you know being in in this job for you know number of years is, is agreeing. With. Just just from from you know, I mean, if you develop. I mean, obviously you have a manager and, you know, what, what is it that, that you expect from, from your manager or your job to, to give you this kind of freedom to find out what you want and what, what, where, where you would like to develop? Because as you said, you know, when you start, there's, you know, you have no clue. <laughs> I, I didn't have a clue when I started. So it was fun and I enjoyed it, but then realizing after years, kind of where, where my direction is going. And so how, what, what is it that you expect from your, managers kind of where you see this is what I need in order to develop and how any any idea I think um it's quite hard to say actually what I expect from my manager as you know when I look back from my the early part of my career I can say what I expect from my manager now um as somebody who is heavily involved with line management of their remeds um I concentrate quite a lot on what I can give my line reports and guiding other line managers as to what they can give. That would have been my second question, Diana. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so um, but, uh, but I think what you're aiming for between your know, line report and line management is that very supportive relationship, an honest relationship, something that you can be very open about so that you can explore where things are going well, where things are not going so well really kind of work out together where what direction you want to go in I think um, being able to be honest with your your line manager means that you can say I'm really not enjoying this actually and I'm not giving the best of myself so you know where where can I give the best of myself what do I like um, but it, it comes down to being able to trust your line manager that mm. that conversation is not going to have sort of a, a very negative outcome I suppose it's it's being able to do that and and certainly earlier in my career I would say I didn't get that at all um it was a, it felt like I had to keep secrets all the time from my line manager and find my own way so I think what you're trying to trying to get from um your line manager is a safe space that that you can you can talk openly in I think I've seen that with managers too. Sometimes there's a reluctance for a manager to have a discussion with someone where they know that person's not thriving. They're not enjoying their work. And they, and I think there's a fear there that, well, if I have this discussion, maybe they're going to decide to leave. Right. And then I'm going to have to hire somebody else. 
but I think a good manager would be concerned about the person and helping them find the place where they're going to be um, most effective, thriving. Um, and I've had some managers that have helped me do that. And I've also had ones that just avoided the, avoided the situation altogether until I yeah. left. But that is not kind. I think being candid is kind here. And so um, being candid to yourself be candid to your your supervisor is very important because that way you can find a solution that works for everybody over a longer period of time. If if you're not that, then it's really really hard to to solve these problems. And um, so be candid. But I think first you need to understand really what you yourself want to achieve, and um, which sounds at first glance, like an easy, easy question or easy to answer question, it becomes more and more difficult the more I think you progress in your career and you see all the different opportunities that you actually have. And um, But still, nonetheless, I think it's really important to have a clear understanding of what you would like to do in a couple of years to make sure you're progressing towards this goal. Because otherwise, I think you'll follow some someone else's goal. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Diana. Uh, great to have you on the show. And you're not the last ones from Veramat. We'll have some others later today. Uh, but with that, let's move over to our next guest. And um, I was really, really happy to have him on the show um, because I have... Um, read lots about him. I have seen lots from him, especially because Alberto Cairo is all about data visualization. Hi, Alberto. Great to have you on the show again. Hi. Hi, everyone. Happy to be, happy to be on the show again. It was a pleasure the first time. It will be a pleasure the second time. Thanks so much. Um, you are actually on a sabbatical at the moment, aren't you? Yes, I am also on a sabbatical, yes, until, <laughs> until, until January, yes, yes. <laughs> so what do you do during your sabbatical at the moment? Um, taking a vacation, honestly. I mean, I, I am supposed to be writing a new book, but you know how life is. Life sometimes gets in the way. Um, I'm not really taking a vacation, but I'm, I'm taking care of family and, and things that I, that I need to pay attention to. The original plan was to work on this new book that I have been working on for quite a while, but life got in the way. So I just pushed the book a little, a little bit uh, towards the future. I will resume working on that, hopefully quite soon. Awesome. Yeah, I think that is that is really important to kind of take care of what is the current priorities. Mm -hmm. And um, as we just talked about what success looks like, it's not just about success at work, it's about success at life. Yep. And um, so there's much more to, you know, to life yep. than just, just work. Absolutely. Um, so as you are now maybe in your sabbatical, a little bit taking a step outside, um, what kind of bigger trends do you currently see in data visualization? Yeah. 
Well, the, the fact actually that I have not been sort of like working full time on data visualization for the past few months, but just you know, taking care of life in general and having time to reflect and think has uh, led me to um, several thoughts about what, what the future may entail for the use of data visualization in many, in many different areas. They are not that different to thoughts that I already had, but I sort of like shaped them a little bit more, a little bit more precisely. And the first one is essentially a theme that permeates my entire career and essentially all the books that I have written, which I, as you know, are popular science books. They are not books that are intended to be read and used by statisticians. They are too basic, right? They, what, what I have done in my career is to try to translate science and try to translate uh, statistical knowledge, particularly statistics represented visually, data visualization, for the general public or for audiences who are not statisticians like my own field, journalism, right? So one of the, one of the trends that I have seen is an increased interest in data visualization everywhere. This was already happening, but it has increased, it has accelerated through the pandemic, right? There's been an explosion in the use of visualization. There was already an increased use, but now it's like every, essentially everywhere. And that, that's wonderful. But at the same time, um, as I mentioned in my, in my, in my most recent book in, 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 in How Chats Lie, I am also concerned and I continue to be concerned. The pandemic has increased that concern uh, with the fact that there is a mismatch between interest and understanding. Right, it's like there's like an increased interest in data visualization among the general public. I have seen friends, family talking about graphs and maps that never happened before. Right, but at the same time, I am also very aware of how people often misinterpret those visualizations. So, if there is a theme that permeates my career, is try to help people who are not scientists, people who are not statisticians, people who are not data scientists not only understand visualization better, but also use visualization in their daily lives as if it were a language, right? Because it is a language, right? So use it to understand the world better and also use it to communicate ideas to other people a little bit better. So I think I'm hopeful about this future and I would like to contribute even more, uh, even more to it, yeah. So where is technology leading us with data visualization? And in particular, what I'm thinking about is the metaverse. Yeah, well, I have no idea where that will lead us. I'm not very good at, at, at making predictions of what technology, what technology will do with our, uh, with our lives. What I do know, though, is that talking about tools and technologies bores me to tears. So oh, on one hand, on one hand, I am, I am much in favor of technology, obviously. There's actually a trend that contributes to what I was explaining before, which is the fact that many tools that we use today in data visualization have become increasingly, increasingly usable or easy to use, right? And that has brought many people in, right? There, there are platforms online in which you can drop some data, then immediately you create amazing visualizations very, very quickly. And that's great because that's con 
that that lowers the barrier of entry for people to enter in data into data visualization. And, and I guess that all of us can mention tools that we have seen uh, out there. We don't need to name names, right? That's great. Um, about the metaverse, I have no idea. Um, I have seen developments in the um, in, in, in the combination of data visualization with virtual reality and mixed reality technologies, and I think that there is a lot of space to be explored in those areas. But as I said before, that doesn't really, I mean, it's interesting. I want to sort of like push people forward and, and in that sense and, you know, encourage people to keep experimenting with tools and developing new technologies, new programming languages. That's all wonderful. But my, my main interest is, is, is more on the conceptual side of things, on the more philosophical side of things. And for me, tools and technologies, etc., they are not a means, they are, they are not an end, right? They are a means to reach one end, which is this democratization in the use of visualization. And even visualization is not a goal on its own. My, um, my main goal, my core goal, the ultimate goal of using visualization is to make science and understanding more accessible to people. For me, visualization is just a way to communicate things and a way to understand things. Visualization can be used both to communicate and also to, also to reason. It's a reasoning tool, right? So I want people to be able to use visualization as a reasoning tool and as a communication tool in order to gain understanding. That's what really makes me feel, you know, passionate or that makes me feel excited about visualization. Yeah, and I think especially in our area of healthcare, that is where data visualization needs to, you know, play a much bigger role. Um, uh, role. We have, yeah. you know, the and I'm, 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 going to, I'm going to interrupt you in there because I think that that is crucial. Uh, uh, my entire family works in healthcare. So uh, my dad is a doctor, my mom is, a, well, they are retired now, but my mom used to be a nurse, head of nursing in a hospital. My entire family works in healthcare. So I feel very strongly about the communication of, of health issues and bioscience uh, issues to the general, to the general public. <laughs> Picking back, connecting to connecting to to your first question about where visualization is going, there is another trend that I see, uh, which is also not new, but it has been corroborated by recent experimental empirical uh, results in several studies, which is the increased interest among designers of visualizations intended to communicate because you, you know that visualization can be used to yep. explore and analyze or to communicate. Now I'm focusing on communication visualization. An increased focus, not just on the visualizations themselves, but on the words that we pair with the visualization. When we call, what we call in visualization, the annotation layer. Recent experiments by people from, for example, I'm thinking about uh, Steve Franconeri from Northwestern University, have actually corroborated, sort of corroborated the importance of the annotation layer, right? When you want to communicate a message, don't rely on the visualization alone. Pair the visualization. The visualization should provide the empirical, the empirical proof of what you're trying to say, right? But say it, right? Write a good headline, write a good title, write a good intro, write good annotations, and then show me the visualization. Tell me what I'm looking at, and then show it to me, right? Then show it to me. When you pair good text or good words, spoken words, with the visualization, then the message becomes much stronger, which is something that we already sort of knew. I come from the world of journalism, so this is sort of like widespread knowledge 
in journalism, but now it ha it's actually being tested with actual subjects in, in experiments, right? We know it also because of the success of people such as Hans Rosling, which essentially applied this technique, right, of showing graphs, showing maps, showing charts, and then overlaying his own body on top of the visualization, explaining how to read the visualization and also explaining what the visualization was showing. Yep, yep, I completely agree. Uh, Ed, actually, that's one of the common themes in the wonderful Wednesday webinar series, which we have about data visualization. We always speak about the title, the footnote, the um, access descriptions, and these can be much better than just having something like efficacy results or safety results at week X there. Um, that's, a great, that's a great subtitle. That's the subtitle. Subtitles yeah, should, yeah. should explain, you know, what the metrics are that are being shown. But the title should be something, something more direct. Again, for visualizations intended to communicate, it is different when you're designing a visualization to analyze data. When you're designing yeah. a dashboard, an exploratory visualization, that's completely different, right? It's a completely different beast. Yeah. Thanks so much, Alberto, for carving out a little bit of time uh, from, the, from your vacation. And uh, thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to seeing your next book and um, hope you get some time to write it be beyond taking care of your family and, and of course taking a break, which is surely quite deserved after the last book, book launch. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you. Nice to see you all.